0: Welcome you back. I uh, hope you had a great Fourth of July celebrating our nation's freedoms, independence. That was uh, a lot of fun. Um, and I just think it's awesome that we can meet here today without fear. What, what, a, what a privilege that we have. We can worship God publicly without the fear of retribution. Our freedom is a blessing from God, and uh, we need to say thank you to him for that. Um, and it's also something we need to say thank you to our veterans. To those in the armed services who have fought to defend these freedoms, um, this precious gift, because without them, chances are we wouldn't enjoy what we have, uh, which is an amazing thing. And so I want to say thank you if you've served or if you have family that serve in the armed forces. Thank you for allowing us. Right now, we are enjoying what you fought for, uh, which is an amazing thing. And unlike so many churches throughout history and across the globe, even today, we get to worship publicly. We can worship without fear. And not only does it afford us, our freedoms afford us the ability to worship publicly, but our freedoms also empower us to organize and operate outside of the infringement of a government or society. And that means we as a church family are free to structure and operate ourselves according to our beliefs and our values. That is a rare and a precious gift in and of itself. And today, as we're concluding our series on our church's foundations, uh, we're going to be talking about that structure. And since this is the last message of this series, I'm going to give you just a quick recap of what we've discussed so far. Um, For his last series as our senior pastor, Scott did a phenomenal job talking about how and why the Bible needs to be our authority. It's the bedrock of truth upon which our church and our faith must be built. And uh, really nothing else can substitute. We stand firmly upon the word of God. And then over uh, the next uh, couple of weeks, uh, the next week, actually, I shared a, a verse from First Corinthians in which Paul wrote this. He says, because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now, others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than one we already have, which is Christ Jesus. See, every church has a foundation upon which it stands. Paul showed us that a good foundation is laid with skill, and it's also made of the right substance. That is faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. Now, the following weeks after that, we've been looking and examining the foundational blocks upon which This and every church rests. We looked at our heritage, ours in the restoration movement. We looked at our history as a congregation in the Estes Valley. We looked at our heart that motivates us and found that it is Christ Jesus, what beats at the heart of everything we do. And then today we're going to discuss our house. That is our structure, how we are formed, how we operate as a congregation. Now, in every one of those foundational blocks, we have been sure to check three things. The first is that, are we securely anchored in God's Word as its authority? Is our house and our heart and our heritage and our history, are all of those anchored in God's Word (laughs) as our authority? The second thing that we checked is to make sure that it's made of the right substance. Is our foundation built on a firm belief in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? And the third thing that we wanted to check as we've gone through this is that, have we made sure that those foundational blocks have been skillfully laid within our culture and our society? Now, throughout this study, we've discovered that our heritage and the restoration movement helps us enjoy great unity in the essentials of our faith, while at the same time enjoying great liberty in the important but non essentials of our faith. At all the time, it propels us to express great love to one another in all things. It helps us in our restoration movement has helped us to to go back to the simple Christianity, the simple church that we find in the New Testament and to connect to those things. And primary amongst the beliefs of the early church was the belief in Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior, which is what, of course, beats at our heart. Now, our history of the congregation in the Esses Valley has been wonderfully shaped by our mission. We saw that a couple weeks ago. I mean, from our birth in 1994, from that point on and in continuing now, we truly are a fellowship of believers with a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission to know God's love, to grow in God's love, to love God and others and to go and share God's love. Those aren't just words. That is our story. And last week we discussed our heart, our primary motivators of church, why we do what we do. And we found that behind it all beats this belief, this passionate belief in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He truly is God the Son. He truly is our Redeemer. We are crazy about Jesus. (laughs) We love Him. And it just reflects in everything we do. And that love for Jesus as our Lord and our Savior propels us. It is what makes us want to fulfill the purposes he's given us as believers and as a church. We talked about those those five major purposes that God gives for a church. The worship and mission and discipleship and ministry and fellowship. And we are motivated to fulfill this because that's what our Lord and Savior wants from us. And so we do it. And as a result. We're both incredibly healthy and effective at fulfilling our mission as a church. And that's really cool. So we looked at our foundational blocks of heritage and history and heart, and we found them all to be based on the authority of Scripture. That's why we believe and why we do what we do. We see that they are built out of an unwavering faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we see that they have been skillfully set to be effective and relevant in our local culture. Now, this morning, we're going to examine the fourth and final block in our congregational foundation, and that is our house, our operational structure. Now, the church isn't a building or an institution. We've talked about this over and over and over again throughout this series. I hope that it's sticking, it's going in. People don't come to church. We, we, we gather for worship, but you are the church. We are the church, And not only just a church, but we could say we are actually a body of Christ. And you could say that because that's what the Bible calls us. It says this, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. The foot, if the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, does that make it any less part of the body? And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would it make it any less part of the body? The whole body, if the whole body were an eye, how would it hear? Or if the whole body were an ear, how would it smell anything? But our bodies have many parts. And God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. (laughs) Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can never say to the feet, I don't need you. Now, one thing I really love about this illustration is how it emphasizes the value of every member, while it also acknowledges the uniqueness of every role. And this runs counter to our propensity as humans to elevate the status of some roles at the expense of others, right? And we naturally assign hierarchies of value to necessary hierarchies of operation. In other words, we tend to say things like there are certain roles that are more important than others. We tend to look at those that are on the top of the hierarchy and say those people that fill those roles must be more valuable than those that are not there. It's because we have a sin nature, we tend to use those false hierarchies of value that we assign to our operational structures as a a weapon. We tend to use those false hierarchy of values as a a means to abuse other people, to oppress them and to to wield power for our own purposes. In the government, that results often in tyranny and corruption. We know what that looks like. In families and in, in society, it's historically has come out to look like patriarchal chauvinism. And when it comes to religion, well, that type of abuse often manifests itself as a repressive theocracy. Now, those type of abuses of position are based upon a false hierarchy of value, right? So when people look at the structure of how things are supposed to operate and they start saying those up the top are more important, or this position is more important or more valuable, and therefore that person is able to abuse that power. Now, if those type of abuses last long enough, they build resentment, don't they? Especially in the people that are being oppressed and abused. Of course they do. And if it goes on long enough, eventually what you have is you're gonna have a, a reaction. Uh Something in the news, the Arab Spring that happened here recently, right? That, that was a response to decades of, of tyrannical rule. That's why that happened. We have the feminist and, and the familial disconstructionist movements that, that started in the, the late 60s and, and continue on to the day. Those are reactions against the centuries of abusive patriarchal chauvinism. It didn't just happen overnight. The, the radical civil secularism that we see in our courts and our and our society today—that's a reaction against the threat of medieval theocracy. There's a, there's a fear there. People say, "Oh, well, we can't have faith be too close to us and how we operate," because it's been abused in the past. Now, the crazy things about these reactions is that uh, just about every time there is a reaction against an abuse of power, those reactions rarely address the very thing that, that they're reacting against. They rarely address the false hierarchies of value <laughs> that are at, at the root of, of the inequity. Revolutionaries often just place, replace one tyrant for another, don't they? <laughs> and, but when, when reactions, when we as people, as when we react to this oppression and this frustration... And sometimes we get it right and we react and we say, all right, we're going to address the value system, the false value system that led to this. We often go too far. And we not just throw out the false hierarchy of values, but we throw away the very structure upon which we need to operate. A great example of this is the egalitarianism. Uh, egalitarians rightly point out that organizational hierarchies lead to value inequities. Historically, it's true. We can't deny it. Therefore, they suggest the only way to ensure true equity is to eliminate all social structures that give rise to those inequities, right? In other words, they try to guarantee equality by forcing everything to be the same. Now, that would be great if everything were exactly the same. But the reality is, is we're not all the same. We're different. Observation common sense testify that that there are differences there are necessary differences any company that doesn't have a manager and an overseer if everyone was just an equal employee that company would go under any army that didn't have a general would lose any team that doesn't have a coach is done for we need these structures there has to be differences. And that's why I find this passage so profound. It recognizes our differences while it soundly rebuffs our inclinations to attach value to them. As it says in there, the eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can never say to the feet, I don't need you. And so as we discuss our structure as a church, we must resist the urge to attach arbitrary hierarchy values (laughs) to the different roles. The structure we've used to model this church after is based upon our best understanding of how the New Testament teaches and describes how a church should operate. This is, after all, if we think about it, kind of at the heart of the restoration movement, right? We're trying to restore our uh, the early church, original Christianity today. In the New Testament, we find that the church functioned around a very simple yet very clear hierarchy. It does. At the top is God. And at the top of the Godhead, think about this. God also has hierarchy in and among himself. At the top is God the Father. And he is the head. And his will is revealed to us by God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. They, even Christ says, I don't do my own will but that of the Father. There is obedience and submission even in the Godhead, which means that it's not an ugly thing. There is leadership in the Godhead, which means it's not an ugly thing. It's how it's practiced. And God, the Son and God, the Holy Spirit, reveal His will, but they don't just tell us what God wants us to do. Here's the crazy and most awesome thing about it, is they actually empower us and teach us how to do it. And God is awesome. Now we have God the Father at the top. Next, we have the apostles in the early church. You read the the scripture, you say, All right, God is forming his church. He's at the head. And then he sets his apostles. They were appointed and anointed by God to guide the early church in matters of faith and practice. Right? When the church had issues or problems or whatever, the apostles would step in and say, Ho, ho, this is the way that you should believe, and this is the way that you should act. Right? And the church needed to follow that. Now, the apostles died. Sorry. But before they died, the Holy Spirit used them to pen the New Testament. And that, along with the Old Testament, becomes our authority for faith and practice, which we have talked about. Now, under the authority of the apostles or the scriptures that they wrote, were the local fellowship of believers, the church. Now, within the body of the local church, we see three distinct tiers of responsibility. We have the pastor elders, you have the deacons, and you have the ministers. And so in our church, we operate under that same design. It's nothing fancy here. We have God as our highest authority. We have scripture, which is our authority for faith and practice. This is what we believe and how we do it. And we have pastor elders, deacons, and ministers. And since these last three, the pastor, elders, deacons, and ministers, are part of the local body, which is what we are, uh, we're going to discuss those roles in a little more detail in just a minute here. But as we do, just again, I want to emphasize how important it is that we don't begin to attach false values to that design. I mean, it's so important that we realize that God has created all of them, and they are all equally important. As Jesus taught the disciples in Mark 10, you know that the rulers of this world love to lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, greatness and value, if we want to put a hierarchy of greatness and value to something, we realize that greatness and value in Christ's kingdom is not tied to operational hierarchies. It never was. It's not by position. It's not as though I'm going to get to heaven and God says, oh, Aaron, you were a pastor. Therefore, you get a bigger house. That just doesn't happen. No, no. In the kingdom of God, Jesus shows that, that uh, value is granted a different way. It's gained through selfless love. It's gained through humble service. It's gained through great faith. Now, these can be expressed by anyone, regardless of what role they find themselves in any situation, be it in the church or in the family or in society or anywhere. Every one of us has the capacity to love greatly, to serve others with great humility, and to live with amazing faith. Therefore, the hierarchy in the New Testament describes for the structure of the church is not about assigning value. It never was, it never will be. But rather, its purpose is for assuring operational functionality. God wants us to operate in a healthy way. That's why he gave us a good hierarchy. Look at every business, every military, every team, every organization in the world has to operate in some way. This is how God says this is the way we should operate. The heart is no more or less valuable than the brain or the lungs, is it? And if you lose any of those, basically you're kaput. (laughs) The body needs all of them to operate and function. Still, the lungs and the heart must follow the promptings of the brain, right? Or else you're also equally kaput. In the same way, deacons are no more or less valuable than pastor elders or ministers, right? The body needs all three to function. If you don't have any of those, we're done for. But still, the ministers and the deacons must follow the leadership of the pastor elders for the church to work correctly. It's just the way God designed our church to operate. So now, hopefully, we have that cleared up, that we're that this is not about value, but this is about function. Let's talk about these three different spheres of, of our roles in the church. The first, the pastor elders. And the, And one the thing you might notice as I'm talking about this, you say, Aaron, why do you keep calling them by two titles? Pastor Elder? That's kind of crazy. Like we don't hear that very often. Well, I'll tell you why. Well, pastor literally means shepherd. Elder means old guy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's what it means. It means old guy. And the reason that I use those terms to, I don't know I'm an elder, right? Uh, the reason we use those terms, is because those are the terms that the Bible uses to describe that position. Okay? Now, this is why it's important that we, we don't just interpret things in light of our, like what we hear today. Because if we did, we would be tempted to say, oh, the, the God wants pastor elders. He wants, to, he wants basically geezer ranchers to be in charge of his church. That's not what he's saying. There's something in those words that talks about what we are to be, and it's different now in our culture. Realize that unlike our culture today, uh, where seniors are marginalized and often too often ignored. Uh, in the ancient cultures in Israel and Rome, elders were venerated for their age and their wisdom, and, and, and often they were bestowed uh, the mantle of leadership in their homes and their communities. How many times in the Bible you read about they, they go to the city gate to meet with the city elders, <laughs> right? There were some that say, wow, you lived this long in life? You must know something, <laughs> right? Therefore, the title of elder, elder connotes uh, an esteem of, and of wise leadership. They were more, in more modern speak, we would say that, that the elder is a respected administrator, now, unlike the elders in their culture, which were respected, shepherds really weren't, right? Shepherds were were not a, uh, a position of high esteem in, in early first century Jewish culture. In fact, they are oftentimes looked down upon. And so you have this two ends of the spectrum. But shepherds or pastors were known very much for their uh, their careful guardianship, uh, their, their, their love for for their their ability to guide their flocks. Uh, shepherds were seen day in and day out in the cold fields or the hot fields caring for the sheep. And it's a beautiful picture of what God calls the pastor to do. Several times throughout Jesus's ministry he referred to his hearers as sheep that needed a shepherd. And in John 10 he proclaims, "I am the good shepherd." I know my sheep and they know me. And he's the original pastor. Later in chapter 21, after Jesus had risen from the dead, but before he ascended back into heaven, Jesus passes that mantle on, the torch of pastoring to Peter and this well-known uh, conversation. Uh, Peter, remember, denied Jesus. And then Jesus goes and meets with him personally and restores him. And this is this conversation. Part of the conversation, it says, Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. In fact, in that conversation three times, Jesus tells Peter to take care of his sheep, to feed the sheep. He's telling him, step up, Peter. You're now the pastor. You're now the shepherd. So Jesus, the original senior pastor, passes on the responsibility of pastoring his people, the church, to the apostles. It would now be their role to guard and protect and to care for and to guide the church on Christ's behalf. Now, as the faith in the church grew and, and local bodies of, of, of faith began to organize in, in towns and communities and cities throughout the Roman Empire, there were only 12 apostles and there, there needed to be more shepherds for God's people. And so the apostles began to pass the torch of this great responsibility on to select faithful men. As illustrated in this passage from Acts, where where Paul charges the elders at Miletus this. He says, so guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders. Now, the apostles said, all right. In the local church, we are going to assign shepherds. And your job is to guard, to protect, and to guide. And they pass that mantle on to the elders. Now, many denominations have separated these two into distinct roles, pastors and elders, right? You have, like, the senior pastor or staff pastors, and then you have, like, a board of elders, right? So typically in our culture, when we think of pastors, we think of somebody who is part of the clergy. He's He's a vocational Minister, right, who does the work of pastoring and elders typically are respected laymen, right, who form a board who help support and guide and oversee the pastor. That's how in our culture, most denominations, they work. And the reason they work that way is a response to what happened in the Middle Ages when clergy was elevated and separated from the congregation. Pastors were no longer part of the congregation. They were somehow different. Uh, They were given power and authority to be different. And so local eldership boards is when the Reformation began. said, wait, we want to help uh, take away the abuse of power that the church had. And so we have elders that are going to oversee the pastors. So you have this tie, this this friction between clergy and laity that didn't exist in the early church. Now, because we're part of the restoration movement, not to say that that can't work. There's a lot of wonderful, great congregations out there that have pastors and elders. But we are part of the restoration movement. We are trying to restore the church to its original simplicity. And so we have opted as a congregation to restore those dual roles into one. Pastor elders, the way that we find it in New Testament. It's a dual office. They are, they are, we are administrators, but we are also coaches, right? We're there to guide and to guard and to help and protect, but also to oversee. Now, because we don't have laity and clergy as the pastor, like we don't have pastors of being clergy and, and elders as laity, part of the church, we don't ever recognize that. We're all just pastor elders. Our board is made up of some people who are on staff and others are not. Most of the pastor elders in our church do it volunteer. They consider laity, but we're all part of the same congregation. So they they volunteer their time, and because they volunteer their time, there's only a certain amount of time that they can op- they can they can give to this because they've got to go make a living. Right? Others like me, I've been blessed. Like you help fund me, so I am freed up to do the work of a pastor elder. That's I don't get a salary to do a job. I I get income to free me up for ministry. And that's huge, and that's wonderful. And that's the only difference. It's that I've been freed up to spend more time and more of my energies to do this. But I am no more pastor elder than Jeffrey or, or James or Keith. We are all pastor elders of this church. We are here to guard and to guide and protect and to lead. Next to our pastor elders, we have deacons and deaconesses. Now, this office originated early in the life of the church as well, as an office of necessity. See, in the early as the church grew, problems grew. That's one amazing thing with people is we have problems. We just do. And as these problems grew, they started taking more and more of the time of leadership to address them. Right. And what happened was, as you have some of these widows in the church, the church, God wants us to take care of widows. It's one of the things he says directly Loved me by doing this. Well, the church was trying to do that. And we find out that some widows were being neglected because of their cultural heritage, which is not okay. And and the early church recognized it wasn't. And so in Acts 6, we read, this is what they did. It says, so the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. And they said, we apostles should not spend our time. We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, Select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and in teaching the word. Now, everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. And these seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them and laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread and a number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. see the impact of a great deacon. Uh, phenomenal. See, ever since the start of the church, deacons have been instrumental to the success and the progress of the church. See, deacons and deaconesses, they are faithful men and gifted men and women whom assist the leadership by serving the church in key and crucial areas of ministry. Without their service, the pastor elders would be unable to fulfill their responsibilities and the church body would suffer from significant and unmet needs. The office of deacon was never intended to be, uh, by the early church, be a title of prestige. It's not like it was a popularity show. Where we're like, wow, we really like you, so we're going to give you the title of deacon. But you don't have to do anything. You can just walk around and say, hey, I'm a deacon. That was never the title. It was, it was a, a mantle of responsibility. Because they operate as an extension of the leadership and minister in sensitive and vital areas in the church, it's crucial that the spiritual maturity and character and reputa- reputation of the deacons are also on par with their skills to meet those needs, right? We can't just find somebody who's good at doing something and say, okay, go ahead and do it, if that person is, a, is you know walking not with the Lord in a very good way, <laughs> right? They'll do more harm than good. So the deacons have to have this character, this reputation of respect and honor, as well as good skill. They have to be actively meeting a need in the body. And so in our church, we don't just have deacons. We have deacons and deaconesses of certain areas, certain ministries. They are active at doing certain things, filling vital roles in the church. So the pastors can get on with our job of praying and teaching the word of God and helping disciple. Uh, they are doing good work so that the real needs of the body are met. So that the ministers of the body can go and do God's work like he's called them to. Now, we finally get now to the ministers. Who are the ministers? Well, in the word of God, we find out that we all are. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are a minister. All right? there, there is no part in that whole hierarchy I hope you, still, you see there. There was no part of that that was just said, I am a member. I am a parishioner. Okay? If you are in the body of Christ, you are an authorized, ordained minister of God. God has specifically built each one of us for a specific ministry. And, and here's a little hint here. No one has ever been gifted with the ministry of bench warmer. <laughs> right? If you're in God's kingdom, he has a purpose for you. There is an action that He's made you for. Now, I know in this overbooked, this cometophobic culture that we live in, that that kind of sounds or may sound a little scary, a little intimidating. You're like, wow, great. Now I'm a minister. Now I've got one more hat to put on, one more thing to cram into my busy life and schedule. I get it. I live in the same world that you do. I understand that it. it sounds like, "Well, oh, now God's putting this big thing on me. The truth is, however, finding your ministry is one of the most fulfilling and rewarding and freeing experiences that you can ever experience in life. Now, I took my wrong car to work today, which is too bad, because on Friday I was thinking ahead. This will teach me to try to be like Scott and think ahead. I had this screwdriver I wanted to show you. When I was an electrician, I had this tool pouch. And in this tool pouch, I had all kinds of tools, but they had this one screwdriver. It was a long it was a Craftsman standard screwdriver. It's about that big. I think it's huge and it had a massive head on it. Now I used that screwdriver for everything. Now, I would break rocks out of the ground if I was like needing to dig a trench with it. I would score boxes, you know, with the thing with like a hammer. Sometimes I would use it as a hammer where I couldn't fit my real hammer in, you know, I'd like quack, 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 in like little tiny, tight spaces. I would use it to scrape rust and paint off the of stuff i would use that hammer for all or that that screwdriver for all kinds of purposes but you know it wasn't really ever made for any of those purposes and so it could do them but it was always just a little frustrating right and I'd use it as a chisel if i actually had a chisel the chisel would work a lot better i could use it as a hammer but i tell you what if i had the choice to use a hammer over that <laughs> i would usually use a hammer because it would take forever to drive a hammer with that little screwdriver I could use it to scrape rust off of stuff, but if I had, you know, some uh, some sandpaper or some steel wool, that would always work better. But I just use it because it was convenient and it was there. But every once in a while, I would come across one of those old 1950s electrical panels that was that used that kind of screwdriver, and that's not the only kind of panel that would use that kind of screwdriver. But I come across one of those, and nothing else would work. And when I put that screwdriver in there, boom! Man, it was amazing. It would just whoosh, make that job, which would normally be very difficult, it made it just smooth and easy. Right? There was very little frustration. That screwdriver was now living according to its design. It was doing what it was made to do, and it was wonderful. A lot of us are like that screwdriver, aren't we? We spend a lot of our lives doing a lot of necessary things. We do a lot of things because we have to, because we're there in the situation and things have to get done. We're like a screwdriver that's being used as a chisel sometimes, aren't we? And our lives gets filled with those things. But when we find our ministry, we discover how and why God shaped us the way that we did. Because he made you, he shaped you, he formed you for a purpose. And when you discover what that is, it's unlike anything else. The frustration, the 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 just that feeling i don't fit in i just don't fit this that goes away you're doing what you were made to do and it's amazing it's freeing it's it's incredible it's one of life's most invigorating and fulfilling experiences i I tell you the truth because i've seen it not just in my own life part of the wonderful thing about what i get to do is i help people find their ministry their calling what you were made for. And I've seen people that have been burdened with so many things, but when they find that one place, man, that is, a, that is a, an oasis of joy in their life. If you haven't found your ministry yet, I can't encourage you enough to do it. Why rob yourself of the great joy any longer? And if you don't even know where to start, like how do I know how God shaped me? What is my ministry? What am I made for? Come talk with me. That's one of the things that I do, and I'm pretty darn good at it, too. <laughs> we will help you find your place in God's kingdom, what he designed you for. But here's the amazing thing that we also read. It says that God, like the body, says that, that there's lots of different organs, that God made everything for a specific reason. Okay? It said he also, in that passage, it says, and he put everyone in just the right place. See, God didn't just shape you specifically and perfectly for the job he wants you to do. He has assembled us as a church family here for a purpose, for a job he wants us to do. You're not here by accident. There is a reason that the people who are part of this church family are part of this church family. I often say, you've probably have heard me say this before, that God tools the church for the work he wants to do. Right? So, like, if I if I asked you to come over to my house to help me with something, you're like, okay, Aaron and then you come over, and I hand you a pipe wrench and some Teflon tape, right? You're probably going to think, you're going to deduce from that, wow, I bet you I'm going to do something that has to do with plumbing, right? Because you look at the tools, and you'll say, "Ah, oh, I have an idea <laughs> about where I'm supposed to serve. If you get on top of my roof and start trying to like fix my roof with those things, we'll worry about you. <laughs> you see, you are here for a reason, and one of the greatest things. Our church has a purpose. There is something that God wants us to do in the Estes Valley. There's something that God wants us to do here now. And he has tooled this church perfectly to do it. He has been preparing for it. He has been planning for it. He has been shaping each and every tool that is needed. And we are here to do something. And so one of the most important things that we can do as a church is discover how God has tooled us. Who is here and how are we gifted? Because that's going to give us a clue as to what he wants us to do. And I tell you, just as it's exciting to to when you are doing what God created you to do, when the church is, is, is operating in a mission that God made for us, it's amazing. Amazing things happen. Good things happen in our community because the kingdom of God is propelled in the areas that God wants it to be propelled. We'll be doing what God called us to do. As we conclude our series on foundations as a church, I I sincerely hope that you've discovered that this church has a solid and a skillfully laid foundation upon which we are about to build our future. How cool is that? How amazing is that? What a gift. Our heritage, our history, our heart and our house are solid evidence of our devotion to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And you know what? That's thanks in no small part to the amazing love and skill of Scott and Laurie Weber. when they come back, I hope that you have an opportunity to say thank you to them for, for helping build this foundation upon which we are going to have the pleasure of building our future. Uh, we owe them a lot. They are skilled workmen. Our church is strong. Our church is, is stable. Our church is healthy. Our church is ready for the next phase, and I'm excited to share with you with the vision of what that next phase is. I'm going to do that next week. It's going to be awesome. I really hope that you join us for that because this is what we're going to be going after, uh, you know, full throttle. Because we're going to be doing what God called us to do. Now, until that, this week, the question is, where's is your foundation, All right? Because we're the church. Where is your house? Have you found your place in the body of Christ? Are you serving where God called you to serve? Have you found your ministry? If not, then let's find your ministry. If you found your ministry, I hope that you're serving in it. If you need assistance and help serving it, then, then let us you know. Let the body of Christ assist. But do what God made you for. If you are a deacon... Our deaconess, take hold of, of what you are doing. And see the importance and the value that without our deacons and our deaconesses, we as a church will have a very difficult time growing. And the pastors aren't going to be able to do their job. So if you are a deacon, do what you do for, for the love of Christ and do it well. And for our pastors and our elders, pray for them as they guard and to guide and protect. Ask God to give us the right character and the right heart for this congregation. Not to do what so many have done in history and abuse that power to oppress, but instead to use that ability to lay our lives down for the congregation to become your slaves in a way to serve this body so the ministers are able to do the work that God has called us to do. Where are you in that? Is your foundation in the house is it solidly set? Is your heart, does it beat with Christ? Uh, are you on a mission are you part of living for something like we are as a church to reach this community, to love God, to be, to be greatly committed to the Great Commission and the Great Command? Are you part of a restoration to see God restore relationship between himself and, and sinful people? Are you part of, of a relationship of, of believers that models after what the Bible says is a very simple faith that we're all part of? What's your foundation? If you have a decision to make, if you need a little foundation work yourself, I invite you to come forward. We'll pray for you. We'll help you set your foundation to be firm and strong so we are ready as a church to grow. If you aren't standing on Christ for your salvation, faith, that's the first place to begin. If you've never come to know him as your Lord and Savior, here's great news. He loves you. He died for you, but he also rose again. and he calls you to great things. He will not reject you, but He will accept you and put you to amazing woodwork. If you need a Lord and Savior, if you need the foundation of Jesus Christ, I invite you to come forward. If we place our faith in Him, He will accept you. And you will be part of this church now. If you have another desire, need, if you have a prayer request to offer, I also invite you to come forward and share that this morning. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come to stand. us see.